Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sharika Hellaludin, and today on the show we're kind of grappling with what all of those words mean. It's been four years since the beginning of this show, and whilst I'm pretty new here as a producer, Race Matters has truly transformed the ways that conversations on race and racism are held in this landscape. Still, today, when people grapple with the question of, is it racist or not, even as an audience member of this show, Darren, Sarah, and Tanya, and many others have created a lot of space here to go beyond superficial and fleeting politics. So behind the scenes, we've been asking the questions of where to now, and how our conversations can form relationships and connections that equally transform the world we live in for good and how to not get stuck in trending conversations of race politics and what we're really building beyond here. Big questions, Um, but one we felt needed the guidance of someone who was able to help us hold some bigger and deeper chats on race and beyond. Ahead on the show, we're going to hear an interview with Andrew Brooks and Darren Lasagas. Andrew is one half of the Critical Art Collective Snack Syndicate alongside Astrid LaRange. They make texts, objects, installations and meals. Basically, their work takes on lots of forms but is often grounded in bringing together people and ideas as a way to collapse structures that can be static, violent or isolating. Andrew Brooks himself lectures in media cultures at the University of New South Wales. He is a founding member of the Infrastructural Inequalities Research Network, the author of Homework, a book of essays co-written with Astrid LaRange, and the poetry collection Inferno. Really, he's someone who's interested in sharing ideas that enact social change in ways that are accessible, communal, and poetic. He sat down with Darren Lasagas the other day to talk about study as a social practice, love as a political tool, and the ways we can find possibility and hope in unexpected places. Be sure to stick around if you want to listen to a chat with a lot of heart and knowledge. Here's the two of them speaking about a recent radio residency that Snack Syndicate did and the power of radio to share subversive politics. I 
no stranger to radio. Haven't recently taken over the Melbourne Trades Hall broadcasting a whole weekend exploring the history and future of labour. What was that like? Yeah, it was an amazing project. It was a really, really rewarding project, um, a, a really fun project, a challenging project too. You know, it involved, um, it was a kind of performative installation. So we kind of in, inhabited the Trades Hall um the Solidarity Hall in Trades Hall down in Nam for the weekend as part of an exhibition called Take Hold of the Clouds, in which, you know, we were invited to make a site responsive work. Um, and we picked the Trades Hall to work with. We have a kind of interest in labour organising and histories of struggle and what that looks like and what that feels like. Um, uh, and so we kind of, uh, in researching the building, we discovered that there was a, um, a one of the first radio stations in the country broadcast out of Trades Hall 3KZ um, and then it became a commercial um, radio station later in its life. Uh, so we thought we'd reanimate the radio station for the weekend as part of this project which was um, a lot of work <laughs> and it meant being on on, on, on air, um, Astro and I were kind of on air over the two days for you know about six or seven hours each day um, but it was a really rewarding project because we invited a bunch of people in to collaborate with us and to work on the project with us. We worked with the wonderful John Chia um, as a radio producer, um, but he was much more than just a radio producer. <laughs> as most producers are. Exactly. <laughs> Collaborator, yeah. uh, brilliant mind, all of those things. Uh, we worked with Paul Mylacrane on the designs and we made some kind of printed matter and textual material. Um, we were very fortunate to have um, pastries provided by um, uh, All A Welcome Bakery down in Nam. Uh, and then we invited a bunch of um, brilliant thinkers and friends and comrades to kind of think through these questions of... Um, you know, labour struggle, but not just labour struggle. I suppose we were interested in thinking about the kind of history of labour struggle in this country and also its uh, relationship to the Trades Hall building. Um, but we were also very interested in trying to kind of complicate that history too, to look back at it and think, well, who's been left out of conceptualizations of the worker? Um, you know, how does it intersect with um, sovereign struggles and First Nations struggles in this country? How does it intersect with struggles over social reproduction and feminist struggles and sex worker struggles? Um, and how can we think about, you know, also we wanted to think with the history of that building, but also into the future and think, well, what is labour organising and what is... Um, perhaps not just labour organising, but organising against capital and against colonialism look like in a moment that's marked by economic downturn, um, that's marked by uh, increasing uh, job insecurity and precarity and unemployment and underemployment. And what is what is that? What do those futures look like um, in excess of, you know, the historic sites of labour organising like the union? Mm. You talk about looking to the history of that site and, you know, responding to its site specifically and reanimating 3KZ as a radio station. Were, were you able to get hold of any previous recordings of 3KZ from the time? <laughs> we did, actually. We found a, like, a, a kind of supercut of um, 3KZ stuff. And when I say we reanimated <laughs> the radio, we were really conceptually interested mm. in reanimating it rather than sort of necessarily reanimating some of the content. How do you think radio um, lends itself as an invitation to, to sharing radical ideas? 
Well, I mean, obviously there's a super rich history of that. And part of this project was we were, we were trying to look at those kind of histories of radical radio and rebel radio. And in particular, we were reading um, and, and, and researching um, things like the use of radio in the kind of Algerian um, revolutionary anti-colonial struggle um, in the 60s. And of course, Franz Fanon's um, pretty incredible work on the voice of Algeria in that in the context of that struggle that's published in uh, Dying Colonialism, his kind of some reflections on that, um, on that anti-colonial movement. Uh, and we were looking also at things like uh, the sort of experimentalism of um, something like Radio Alice, the kind of great um, Italian uh, pirate radio station that uh, involved or was run by a bunch of sort of autonomous Marxists um, who were doing things interested in kind of um, broadcasting dispatches from the sort of front lines of autonomous um, workers' struggles, but also using the radio as a site for aesthetic um, and artistic experimentation and really doing some pretty wild and creative things there. And then, of course, there's, you know, a very long and rich history of kind of underground and rebel and pirate radio stations that are, um, you know, that have kind of um, existed over the last kind of half century. So we were really interested in that, and I think radio is a particularly powerful medium for sharing things um there's an intimacy of course about radio you know, sort of if you can get the conditions right it can feel like you're just chatting with someone um i think partly because of also that um the relationship to audience as a sort of dispersed and dispersive thing that can be sometimes a freedom to um a freedom of expression that's a little unconstrained by the um, the literal the literal appearance of an audience in a space. Um, of course, that wasn't necessarily the case in our project that um, had a, a live audience. A live audience. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I do think you know we felt um, we certainly felt very kind of uh, mm. free to talk mm. about whatever we wanted to talk about. Totally. Um, um, with that, you're often co-creating spaces of dialogue, whether they're dispersed audiences or not, collective learning and relationship building. Um, in your experience, what are the ways these actions have resisted the ways we are made to feel alienated and, and disempowered? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I'm not entirely sure. I suppose I'm still thinking um, through that question always. Um, but I am, I'm, I'm drawn always to trying to come back together to find ways to think through the problems of the world with other people. And I think, um, you know, I think uh, the world we live in is one that encourages uh, individuation in all sorts of different ways. Um, and it often encourages a kind of uh, alienation or a kind of fragmentation or a kind of um, dispersal. Um, but I feel like, you know, all of the things uh, I'm interested in doing, um, thinking through problems, um, making uh, creative work, um, at the core of all of those things is really just a desire to come together with other people, to think through certain problems, to eat some food together, to talk through ideas, and also to kind of then see what emerges from, from that. And what emerges from that is the capacity for 
shared understandings, the capacity for solidarity, the capacity to think about how we understand a particular moment and then also act in relation to it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think I, I remain very invested in... in um, trying to participate in and trying also to produce um, spaces in which we can kind of study together and we can come together in a way that is really open-ended and really inviting and presumes um, very little of people who walk into the, mm. into the space. Can you speak to how you understand love as a political tool for transformation maybe? Mm, that's a good question as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think like love is, love is at the core of that. I think, mm. you know, um, I mean, I do think about love, I suppose, as something that is, um, dispossessive rather than possessive. And, um, that I think is probably, um, the kind of core of how I, how I want to, and I'm trying to think about uh, collectivity too. So I think the kind of two things are, are bound together. You know, we often think about, or I don't want to presume, we sometimes think about um, love as a kind of possessive relationship, like something we enter into and we have a kind of claim to the other person. But actually, I think we could invert that and think about it as a giving up, a kind of giving up of ourselves, uh, an opening of ourselves, a kind of consenting to be dispossessed, which is a kind of term we might borrow from Edouard Glissant. Um, we, I'm borrowing from Edouard Glissant. And I think that's a nice way of thinking about um what love is as a sort of giving up of this like claim to individuality um, in a deep and profound way and that sort of uh, consenting to be dispossessed is a kind of perhaps then a condition for how we can kind of come together in radical ways um, mm. in light of that can you tell us what is snack syndicate and how was it how was it born <laughs> um, snack syndicate is uh, a critical art collective um it is uh, myself and um, astrid lorange um, and we've been making work now for almost a decade um astrid has a much better memory <laughs> for for like the origins of things um but it sort of emerged slowly through friendship really we started hanging out and um talking and sharing lunch and sharing food and um, sharing books and um, ideas. And then gradually we began writing things together, um, poems and short texts. Um, and then that kind of continued and we thought at a certain point, oh, maybe we should give ourselves a band name. Uh, <laughs> Um, and so we wanted to pick something that gestured to this idea of sharing um, and also to the kind of finger of the snack as something that's small and portable um, and easy to be shared. Um, and so, you know, we thought a syndicate of snacks. Mm. Um, we liked the appeal to a certain idea of syndicalism and a certain like um, anarcho self-organizing principle, but also the way that that suggests a kind of... Um, always something that extends beyond the two of us. And that has largely been the the way we've tried to work, which is to always kind of um, think about how we can bring others, friends and comrades and other collaborators into the projects that we do um, and in, in order to kind of make and create these kind of temporary shared spaces for study and mm. togetherness. And yeah. um, In a lot of your work... Um 
including the book Homework, both you and Astrid speak through the idea of study as a social practice, um, as something different to learning. How would you articulate that difference? Yeah, that's something that um, we we take and uh, it very indebted to Fred Moten and Stefano Hani for, and they write about this concept of study in their book The Undercommons and also um, in their new book All Incomplete. Um, but it kind of runs through all of their work as well, and so it's something that we've very much um, taken up from from them and have learned a lot um, from them. But I suppose this concept of study, uh, again, it kind of moves, or contra-education, it kind of moves against the way that um, knowledge uh, can tend to be um, locked into certain forms and fixed into certain forms and uh, subject to the kind of logics of enclosure and um, and ultimately also to the logics of, of property. Um, you know, and we can think of, you know, there are, there are wonderful things that, there, there is the possibility and potential for um, good things to happen in the university, but it is also a space of credentialization. It's a space of institutional rules and bureaucratic frameworks. And, you know, we can look back at the history of the university and say that it's never singularly been a place of enlightenment. It has, um, it has a complex relationship to the production of um canons and, 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 and canonical ideas around subjectivity. It also has a complex relationship to inclusion and exclusion. Um, and so we're kind of interested in a concept of study that kind of moves beyond the sort of institutional setting um, that takes, um, you know, life as its as its as its material and that kind of takes seriously the relation the many relationships that we have that are transformative and um, illuminating and involve the exchange of knowledge and are grounded in a kind of commitment to sharing and also a, a political commitment right mm. so study then can you know and i'm paraphrasing moan and hani here it can take place anywhere it can take place it can, something that we do walking around or you know hanging out or you know, in a bar or in a cafe, it's something that is um, that exceeds the kind of constraints of um, in various institutional settings that we're in, but something that has a relationship to a certain kind of political commitment, and that political commitment is ultimately one about um, the refusal of individuation. And the refusal of individuation for us, I think, is also, um, you know, connected to this idea of a, a world beyond capitalism and colonialism, a, a kind of communistic future. Mm. Um, I don't know if there's an answer for this or maybe we're answering this as we go, but like how do we shift our relationship to ideas to you know, go slow and be in relationship with as opposed to a relationship of consumption, you know, which I guess that's what we're taught when, when we you know, go to institutions like universities. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean... That's, a, yeah, that's, that's a, it. That's the question. That's the question, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a great question. Mm. Um, it's a challenging question. And I think, you know, I don't, I, I certainly don't have the answer to this. And I'm constantly trying to work against the tendency to speed up or the tendency to, or the pressure to uh, produce in a certain way or make things legible and visible um, in a certain way. Um but I think it, you know, in part, there's a there's a kind of it is a, it is about an orientation, and that's a that's like a um, a small part of the answer. Um, but it is about reminding ourselves to kind of work against that. It is about 
constantly coming back to the kind of limitations of individuation and the way that they are bound up to histories of racialization, histories of um, the, the emergence of, um, of capitalism as a world system and the immiseration that follows from that. Um, and of course, that doesn't like move us outside of it, but perhaps that sort of uh, invitation to kind of constantly return to that reminder helps us to find ways to prioritize coming together to talk, to share things, to eat a meal, um, and then to also think then how we uh, how that moves towards different different types of actions. You mm. know, how we move towards how that informs the way we organize the various political struggles we're involved in, whether they be struggles against the violence of, you know, the brutality of policing or struggles against uh, the work in, in the workplace. Um, and I think they're all, they're all kind of, uh, they're, re- they're related things. You know, I heard, I heard I, you know, I, I know, um, I just, I just mentioned them, but I heard Monanhani uh, speaking um, recently, and they said they kind of, or you know, one of the tasks of study is to think about how we wildcat the totality. You know, how we think not about being locked into um, struggles around the workplace, although of course that is a particular kind of struggle that we might be involved in. But how we think about how that, how we can manifest that type of antagonism in small and large gestures and kind of mm. all the sites that we're coming into contact with. You speak of this idea of like, yeah, spatial reminders and, you know, specific sites, you know, in your work, we also read about kitchens, bedrooms, um, side alleys, public libraries as sites where radical ideas blossom. How do we begin to see the margins as sites of resistance and, and I guess, possibility? Mm. Yeah, I mean, they are, uh, those sites are also sites of pleasure, I Mm. think, you know, Mm. I think when we think about having a meal with people and gathering in a kitchen, um, cooking for one another or, you know, stealing time for a smoker or, you know, a chat in between classes or in between, you know, these are, these are spaces that um, for me and for us, I think have always been spaces of intense pleasure. And, um, and when we look back at them, they're sites where we've come into contact with um very lifelong friends and comrades who have like influenced the way we think. Um, so I think for us really, it was kind of just thinking through those spaces of transformation and thinking about how they extend, um, you know, how the scene of study extends from the classroom or maybe not even extends, begins around the kitchen table and extends into the classroom might be one one way of inverting it. So I don't know how we think about the margins might be to think about the pleasure of the margins, to think about what we, um, what pleasure we derive from being in those spaces and then to take seriously that they are spaces in which we encounter ideas and make relations. Mm. Yeah. Um, I want to pivot a bit. This show is called race matters more and more over the years of this show's existence we conceptualize um and reconceptualize what it even means to talk about this very slippery thing you know it's a settler term how do we start to expunge the limitations of of talking about identity politics 
Uh, that is such a good <laughs> question, a big question. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I want to just also say how much of a fan I am of the show and the work that you're all doing on this show. It's so great to have dedicated spaces to talk about this very slippery mm. term, to think about um, what it means and also to think about resistances to... to um, to race as a structure of domination. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it is so important to for us to be thinking beyond the kind of fixity of identity um, or, or the way that identity can be transformed into a fixed category, I should say. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, like one way to do that is to, re- to constantly remind ourselves that race is a shifting signifier to borrow Stuart Hall's kind of... Um, famous formulation of it or it's a floating signifier is another way he put it Um, and I think that kind of attention helps us to or reminding ourselves of the way that race floats as a signifier means that we have to constantly attend to the way that it is being formulated and reformulated uh, what it signifies and how it is coming to signify you know race kind of operates discursively it functions like a language and so we have to read the particular ways that it is um it is being produced and the particular things that it is being made to signify so i think that's like uh you know that's an important thing and that helps us to think then about you know one thing we should say about about race is that um you know, it's not an identity. It's not a marker of identity. Mm. It's something that is um, ascribed, and it is something that is is constructed and, as, and and ascribed through its its construction. So it's not. Um, so we shouldn't we shouldn't be thinking about it as a kind of marker of identity in that way. We should be thinking about it as a as a structure of domination, as a tool of domination. And that's not to dismiss identity, you know, what we kind of think of as identity politics. Mm. You know, I think identity is an extremely meaningful category and lived experience is an extremely important way of understanding the world. And, you know, the kind of origins of that term come from the Combahee River Collective, um, who in the 70s were writing about the kind of intersections of different forms of um, oppression, um, uh, gender, race, and, and sexuality, and thinking about how the specific experience of those of living under those intersecting forms of, of expression could inform material struggles. And I think that remains extremely important. The thing we want to resist is transforming those categories into kind of fixed um, markers of um, identity that we imagine have some kind of essence to them or have some kind of... Um, truth to them rather than things that are being constructed that are that are um, emerging through shifting processes of signification and constantly through processes of ascription right Mm. Um, so i think that for me is really important to try to shift the focus away from thinking about fixity to thinking about race as something that is in process um, Mm. that's something that is kind of happening and so one thing i try to do both in my thinking and also you know as someone who's kind of working um with students to try to understand these things differently as well is to try to in some ways shift the emphasis to think what if we begin with 
racism? And what if we begin with the things with racial ascription? What if we begin with this kind of attending to the process of ascription and to track the way that this repetition of ascription and the way that it shifts over time comes to produce the fiction of race as something that has, that is fixed, that's something that appears to have a kind of stable essence and a stable kind of um, truth to it, right? Mm. But in actual fact is the process of a kind of shifting set of um, ascriptions, actions that produce, you know, mm. And the, the other thing I'll say just about the kind of question of identity is that, you know, I think it's true and important also to say that we all live under... Um, racial capitalism um, and that whiteness is also a, a racial con- is, a, is a racial it, whiteness is also a kind of uh, the product of this process of ascription right um, racial ascription it is something that is discursively constructed as well um, and so rather than thinking about um, struggles against white supremacy and racial capitalism as um, struggles of negatively racialized people, I think it's worth thinking about the way that we are all kind of affected by the violence of um, the violence of race and the violence of capital. Um, yet important to say that we have differential relationships to that to mm. those structures, right? So I think it is a it's a shared but differential project of mm. abolishing racial capitalism. Yeah, I mean. <sighs> So much to grapple with there that I'm like, I'm like reeling a little bit. And I'm just like, what does it mean to like have the choice to have that process of like, you know, of, of, of conceptualizing race as a process? Mm-hmm. You know, what does it what does it mean? Or what does it feel like to have that choice taken away? Yeah, of course. Mm. You know, when I say like it, it is a process of ascription, mm. of course it doesn't, you know, when you, when one experiences racism mm. and racial violence it feels it feels extremely mm. it's it feels like a hard line right and it it's it's violent and it can be death dealing in its violence um so you know that's of course not to negate um the experience of racism or what it feels like to be mm. negatively racialized you know all of those things can feel very fixed and can feel very firm and can feel like very hard processes um, and that's the kind of that's the kind of tension to hold to say like yeah it's not about dismissing the the um, the lived experience mm. of that but to remind ourselves that that is an active mm. process that that is a kind of that is a, a, a an ascriptive process and it is a shifting process too right yeah I think just with like you know the way we talk and think about race you know on the show and I guess me personally like maybe it's something I need to let go of this idea of arriving somewhere. Um, you know, that's, that's, that goes against what, what it means to conceptualize race as a process. Like what does it mean to arrive at an understanding of, of it? Um, in the way that, you know, queerness, you're never arriving at queerness, you know, how are we arriving at conceptualizing what it means to, yeah, to see things relationally or like see it as an active or as an action. And then how do we, translate that into the language that we use on this radio show Mm. you know what does that look like and these are questions that we're asking ourselves all the time and Mm. i mean i think that's a i think that's a good question to ask Mm. and you know one way to think of like what we're arriving at Mm. perhaps is to think that 
if race is a kind of um, the product of racial ascription and if race is a technique of and tool of um, domination and subordination, then like what we might be arriving at is the maintenance of um, colonial capitalism, right? The maintenance and the perpetuation and the kind of upholding of that. But because capital is, and capitalism is also a moving totality, also something that is continually um, evolving, even though it has its own kind of laws, we are thinking about all of these things or these things that we're, the the maintenance of something as something that is also continuously in motion. And Mm. so we have to attend to its movements. We have to attend to the kind of way it moves and what it's doing. But I think one of the things that race is doing when we kind of look at it as as a history is it is about the classification and exploitation of group-based differences in order to differentially exploit people under kind of colonialism and capitalism, Mm. right? And those things as interrelated um, world historical processes. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sharika Hellaludin. Thank you to our guest Andrew Brooks for sharing so generously and for instilling some real hope and wisdom and for sharing in our feels about the slipperiness of the ideas we bring up on Race Matters. Thank you also to Darren Lasagas for holding down that conversation. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters at fbiradio.com slash racematters, where we'll also leave some details about the work of Andrew and Snack Syndicate and some of the works that Andrew spoke about today. Race Matters. 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 Race Matters.